if you're a person that's addicted to busyness and is in the way a lifestyle of being busy, then you have to ask yourself for every new opportunity that comes your way, you can't just say yes to it because it sounds good. You have to say, if I say yes to this, to what am I saying no? So again, three-step process, right? What are your core values? How are you spending your time? And what things can you cut? And then when you get back into those old habits of saying yes to everything, you have to make sure that if you're going to take on something new, you get rid of something else. Welcome to Spark Joy, the podcast dedicated to celebrating the Kamari method and the transformative power of surrounding yourself with joy and letting go of all the rest. With your hosts and certified Kamari consultants, Kristen Ivey and Karen Sochi. And now, here's the show. Clutter is really anything that's standing between you and your best life. Here on Spark Joy, we often discuss how the clutter within your four walls impacts your life. But today, we're going to turn the conversation to how the clutter in your mind and maybe in your schedule or your calendar impacts your overall wellness and your ability to be both present and productive on a daily basis. Our guest today is Brad Stolberg. Brad researches, writes, and speaks on health and human performance. He is an award-winning author of the new book, The Passion Paradox, and the best-selling book, Peak Performance. Brad caught our attention when he wrote an article for Outsiders entitled, Use the Kamari Method to Tidy Your Mind, which we'll be sure to link in our show notes. Welcome to Spark Joy, Brad. Hey, thanks so much for having me on the show. Welcome, Brad. We're so glad you're here. So I guess the first question we would have for you would be, how did you get interested in studying this entire field, first with your work in peak performance, and then that evolved into your latest work in the pursuit of passion? It was really a, a self-exploration. About 10 years ago, I was in a pretty high-charging job at a prestigious international consulting firm, and I totally burnt out. And it wasn't necessarily because the job was forcing me to work too much, but much more so because I was just personally incapable of turning it off. I really loved the work and was motivated to give it my all. And while that helped me perform at a real high level for over a year, when the two-year mark rolled around, it started to catch up to me and I began experiencing some of the classic symptoms of burnout. So loss of motivation, anxiety, and even some poor physical health. So at that point, I wondered, is it possible to perform at a really, really high level, but also do it for a long time? And I've always had a, a somewhat scientific mind. So I kind of made a career shift and really wanted to get deep on undoing what I had done to myself. And then when I realized that so much of the self-help work on this topic wasn't very evidence-based. I saw an opportunity to try to fill that gap. And then if you want to perform at a high level, you have to be passionate, you have to have drive. So that felt like a natural extension to keep digging deeper to kind of the roots of what's behind performance and drive. Yeah, it's no secret that our culture really is starting to glamorize and normalize that act of being busy. And it often turns into burnout and for some reason, we wear our busyness with a badge of honor, really use that term to describe our personal lives as well as our business lives as if business equals a good thing. 
So this often shows up in our minds and on our calendars and in our inboxes. And I've been thinking a lot about this lately because I see my clients experience it and I often have to really dig deep and make sure that I'm setting boundaries as well in my own personal life and personal calendar. Because sometimes being busy, you know, can damage you almost more than having like physical clutter manifesting in your home. So I'd love to hear your perspective since you've done so much research on this, on like why we are fallen victim to this and how you recommend that we can marry our way out. So like you said, the current ethos really celebrates being busy. I think you said it perfectly. We wear it as a badge of honor. So there can be a lot of pressure to constantly be doing something or thinking about the next thing. And particularly with the the evolution of social media, if you're not doing something and you're not online, it can be kind of lonely. Mm-hmm. Leisure has kind of like it's rare that there are good leisure opportunities and good community opportunities, which is really sad. So we default to filling that empty space by just planning more, scheduling more, being busy, busy, busy. And that can feel really good for a period of time. It feels great, especially if you're a type A driven person to be checking off boxes and moving from one thing to the next. The issue is when that becomes a chronic way of life and there's no space in between and no downtime, That can be when burnout can manifest because suddenly you're going from one thing to the next without really reflecting on, well, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? And are you giving yourself the time and space to be present for what you're doing? And then also to recover. One of the things that is a first sign of burnout is when you feel a sense of constriction. So like literally you feel that time and space is narrowing because you're so pressured from one thing to the next. Mm -hmm. That's a sign to me of a cluttered mind. Now, in terms of how to con-marie your way out of it, it's actually pretty similar to what you do for your physical space. So I recommend a three-step process for this. The first is to take some time to list out your top core values. I'd say no more than five, no fewer than two. And these should be the guiding principles in your life. So things like family or vulnerability or creativity or health. Just go ahead and make a list of those things and then define what they mean to you and what practices fall underneath those. So then the second step is to take a rough inventory of how you spend your time and energy on an average day. And if you can't come up with an average day, that's fine. You can always just look back to the past week, the past two weeks, even the past month. So how have you been spending your time? And then match that up to your core values. So what percentage of your time and energy are you spending doing things that align with your core values? And then what percent of your time and energy are you spending on things that don't align with your core values? Then the next step is to ask yourself, well, of the things that don't align with my core values, what can I cut? So like no one's core values are... I shouldn't say no one. I have, outside of an accountant, few people have a core value of doing taxes, but you still have to do your taxes. So there are some things, of course, that are not going to align with what you really want to get out of your life. But when I go through this exercise with myself and with coaching clients, what I often realize is that it emerges that... A lot of our busyness is stuff that doesn't fulfill us, doesn't align with how we want to live our best life, and is actually somewhat easy to cut out of the schedule. And then once you've gone ahead and done that cutting, if you're a person that's addicted to busyness and is in the way, a lifestyle of being busy, then you have to ask yourself for every new opportunity that comes your way, you can't just say yes to it because it sounds good. You have to say, if I say yes to this, to what am I saying no? 
So again, three-step process, right? What are your core values? How are you spending your time? And what things can you cut? And then when you get back into those old habits of saying yes to everything, you have to make sure that if you're going to take on something new, you get rid of something else. Yeah, so it's, it's absolutely tying in with Kanmai then. You're talking about the vision statement, you know, what does my best life look like? And then what are the things that I'm doing that are interfering with me getting there? So totally get the tie-in. And one of the things that I was thinking about, one of the things that I've been trying to do is to stop saying I'm busy all the time yeah. because that has become my default excuse for everything. So if I tell you, oh, I've been so busy, that means that's why I haven't returned your phone call. That's why I've not made plans to go have drinks with you. That's the reason that, you know, I didn't call mother this week. That's the reason that I haven't taken care of myself. That's the reason I haven't gotten to the gym. And just the act of saying it makes me tired. Even though I'm really busier than I've ever been, I'm just not saying I'm busy anymore. And I'm going to really work hard over the next few months to stop using that as an excuse it's to keep me from the things that I really do want to be doing. Yeah. And I think when you catch yourself saying I'm busy, like you would never want to say this, for instance, to a friend or family member. But what you're actually saying is I'm choosing not to prioritize this with the time and energy that I have. Yep. Yep. And that's okay. A huge part, in my opinion, of peak performance and well-being is like being a minimalist. So doing few things and caring deeply about them. But again, like it's a very good way to evaluate trade-offs to be able to say, I am not prioritizing this with my time and energy. In your book, Peak Performance, you explore this entire idea of being a minimalist in order to become a maximalist. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that? Sure. So I'm 32. And in growing up, I was always told that you have to be balanced and you have to do all these things and you have to cultivate all these interests and all these hobbies and be great at all of them. So you have to be good at music, you have to be good at sports, you have to be good at school, you have to be a good family member, you have to be a good employee, and the list goes on and on. What I learned in my research in uh, reporting on peak performance is that individuals who perform at the high level and maintain happiness and well-being, they tend not to have that much going on outside of one or two pursuits. And it's the thing that they really care about and they're good at And then it's often another hobby or some kind of community endeavor, whether that's friends, family, or colleagues. So it kind of goes against the trend. The trend is to be a maximalist in everything. So to do everything and go two inches deep. But to really be good at something, you have to do very few things and go really deep. So you have to be a minimalist to be a maximalist. What's also interesting is this isn't just about performance. If you ask people when they tend to remember being the happiest... Very rarely do they report a time of their life when they were perfectly balanced and they were doing lots of things. Often what you hear is, I was starting a business. I was falling in love. I was training for my first marathon. I was renovating my house. These are not very balanced pursuits. So it's really getting away, again, from the cultural ethos of being balanced, doing all these things at once to actually identifying what's important going all in on those things. But like we said earlier, making sure that you continue to evaluate the trade-offs. So if those trade-offs become too great, you can pull out a little bit. Exactly. I love how you're getting us focused on what's essential, which is essentially you know, the, the root of Kanmari, really making sure we only keep the things that spark joy around us. And in this context, only the things that spark joy for our time and make sense for our schedule and that can be tough for sure, 
I know that I've experienced. But it's so doable. Oh, and I'm sorry to I, I'm sorry to interject because like what comes to my mind for listeners mm-hmm. is social media. Mm-hmm. So people spend so much time on social media. And then I, I often ask people, like, how do you feel? Especially if like you're in like political Twitter or political Facebook. And no one ever says that it makes them feel better. And then every once in a while, someone will tell me, well, like, I'm not just going to bury my head in the sand. I need to know what's going on. To which I reply, well, unless you're taking direct action as a result of what you learn, then you don't need to know what's going on because it's not going to change anything you do. It's just going to be a time suck that makes you feel bad. So anyways, I'm so sorry to interject, but like I hear that so often in the first place I start is social media because it's a thing that a lot of people sink a lot of time into. Mm-hmm. And it does bring some people joy. So if it brings you joy, that's great. But more and more, I'm hearing people spending like over an hour a day on this thing that actually makes them feel kind of gross. Yeah. I think it all comes back to control too, because we feel overwhelmed for whatever reason, whether it's clutter in our home or clutter online or in our calendar. But we actually have the control to say no or to shut down the screen time or to cut these things out. And is it really going to harm us You know, if we let it go, even for a day, to see if maybe we can make a shift or if we say no to a friend or a family member and it might make us feel uncomfortable. But that's kind of what we need to practice in order to anchor ourselves to our values. Totally. And I'm so glad that you say that because the issue of control is a good one because we do have control over lots of things, but we often think that we don't. And it's exactly when it feels like you don't have control that is time to exert your control. So a prime example is if you feel like you can't spend a day without social media, that's the perfect time to try to force yourself to spend a day without social media. Because so much of this busyness and the things that we sink our time into, they kind of become behavioral addictions. Like they're things that we feel like we lose control over. So it's so important to stay in control of these things that can suck us in. And as one of my friends says, they're like time and energy vampires. Well, and I think also that brings up kind of an important point going back to this idea of minimalism is that, you know, in Kanmai, with regard to tidying up, we always talk about how Kanmai is not a minimalist philosophy, but it's often a byproduct. You know, people do find themselves really focused on fewer, better things. And we're really interested in in hearing more about how you apply minimalism in a real practical way to kind of maximize your ability to pursue those things that are truly important to you. So I think it's just, it comes down to learning how to say no to things that aren't in alignment with your core values or your mission. And, And as you were both saying, that if you're used to saying yes to everything, saying no might feel very unnatural at first, and it might lead to some anxiety and some self judgment. And just to know that that's okay. And try not to freak out if you feel that way. Because it takes some time to retrain your mind-body system to be able to say no without feeling anxious or concerned about it. And then for me, it really does come back to this practice. And it can be weekly, monthly. uh, Some people even do it daily of just thinking about your core values at the start of the day and just a little reflection on like, well, what are my core values? can go a long way when it comes time to deciding how to spend your time. I love to connect my values with my time. And I love to remind people about this whole idea of using the language, I don't have time to do something. It's like we were saying with this whole idea of saying I'm busy. It's essentially not a true statement. When we say, you know, we do not have time, 
we all have the same 24 hours in the day, technically. So we have the time. It's just we're choosing not to dedicate it to whatever someone's asking us for at that moment. So I tried this for a year. I shifted my language. I never said the words, I'm busy or I don't have time. And it was really effective. It really shifted my mindset and made me feel empowered in terms of taking back the boundaries, which is my daily calendar. Totally. And I think we touched on this earlier, but shifting the language, at least internally, it also helps serve as kind of like a, what's the word I'm looking for, a heuristic to keep you on track. So it's a lot easier to tell a close friend or tell yourself for something that matters to you, I don't have time. Oh, I don't have time to do that. Or nope, like I don't have time to talk to you, family member. But if you say, I'm choosing not to talk to you, family member, or I'm choosing not to write the book that I've been meaning to write for two years, that takes on a whole different feeling tone in the body. Mm-hmm. And that's a wonderful way of coming back to, well, like if you're making this choice, maybe you shouldn't be, or maybe you should. But busy is kind of a cop out. And the word busy itself is busy because it's like, I'm busy. And then boom, you move to the next thing. <laughs> right. You stop thinking about the evaluation, you know? <laughs> right. Exactly. The question, does it spark joy, is a simple one, but not so easy to execute alone. Extend your tidying experience by joining the Spark Joy Club, our online community filled with our clients, fellow listeners, and Kamari enthusiasts ready to support your journey. If you find yourself buried under clothing, stuck on storage, or pointing fingers at untidy housemates or family members, we want to help you finish your tidying journey once and for all. Support the show at the Joy Riser level and receive access to our exclusive virtual community, as well as the Tidy Home Joy Journal, your number one tidying companion. Visit sparkjoypodcast.com and click on Join the Club to get started. And now back to the show. I love how you've also explored this whole idea of how passion really connects to performance. So I'd love to hear more about what inspired you to take that shift into exploring passion and our pursuit of passion and really the intersection between our performance and passion. So after my first book, Peak Performance, was finished, my co-author and I sent our manuscript to our publisher. And my co-author, Steve Magnus, lives in Houston. So I live in California. We live in separate states. And we had scheduled 10 days to get together to go through our edits. And we heard back from our editor that he was running a little bit behind, but the manuscript looked really good. There weren't going to be too many edits. So just stay tuned. And this was our first book with a major publishing house. So instead of like celebrating or choosing to spend the time on vacation, it was only like three hours later that we kind of got antsy. And we started thinking, well, let's start working on the next thing. And then we started thinking, why do we have the inability to just like be content with where we are? And then we were reflecting on how growing up, whether it was coaches, teachers, family members would always compliment us on our drive and on our passion and how it was always seen in this really positive light. But then we started asking, well, wait a minute, like, wouldn't it be nice to feel a little bit more content for a little bit longer? And maybe passion isn't all good. So that was kind of the foray into the research on passion. And then as we got into it, we learned that not only is the way that passion is often spoken about tends to be very superficial, but a lot of what common culture says about passion is just downright wrong. Everything from find your passion to follow your passion 
to the facts, and I was alluding to this a little bit earlier, that if you look at the most popular self-help phrases, it's be passionate and it's be balanced. But balance and passion are like antithetical. It's very hard to be balanced at the same time that you're passionate. So the book really tried to have a more nuanced conversation about how to find your passion, how to follow it in a productive way, and then how to reconcile wanting to be passionate and wanting to go all in on things with wanting to have a balanced life at the same time. Well, and in your book, you talk about this idea that passion is also not only a gift, but also a curse. So, you know, that's super interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about, from your perspective, where the negative side of pursuing a passion comes from? For sure. So I think that there are two primary negative sides. uh, And this is stuff that no one likes to talk about. And I think it's really important to talk about. So the first side is what researchers call obsessive passion. And what obsessive passion is, is when you become more passionate about the external validation or the external result than the activity itself. Mm, Wow. And this is a really, really, really subtle thing. And it happens to a lot of people without even noticing it. So you start doing something, you become passionate about it, you love the activity, so you do more of it, and then you get good. And then when you get good, you start to get good results. So if you're a writer, maybe you sell books. If you're an athlete, you win medals. If you're in the corporate world, you get promoted. And then you can become more passionate about selling books, winning medals, and getting promoted than about the work itself. And when that happens, you're tying your emotion and your sense of self to factors that are totally outside of your control. So obsessive passion is associated with depression, anxiety, and burnout. Harmonious passion which is when you actually love the thing itself, is associated with life satisfaction, well-being, and lasting performance. So that's where we got the title of the book from, The Passion Paradox. Like Passion can be this wonderful thing, and it can be this destructive thing. And it often starts out as the wonderful thing, and then kind of subtly turns negative without people noticing it. Is there a way to come back when you have kind of gone into the dark side of passion? Is there a way to kind of dig out of that? Or is it just... It's hard. Yeah, but there is. So I try to focus on preventative medicine. Okay. And one of the best things that you can do to prevent the dark side happening is what I call the 48-hour rule. And that is after a big success. So like your podcast cracks the top 100 in its category or whatever the big success is, or after a really crappy defeat. So like maybe you try to get a book deal and it gets rejected. You give yourself 48 hours to be really happy and celebrate or be really down and sad, but then you get back to doing the work itself. Because when you're stuck in that mode of celebrating and feeling great or wallowing and feeling down, your brain is literally rewiring in ways that are going to emphasize the emotional feeling of a result. Whereas when you get back to doing the work itself, you're at a very visceral embodied level reminding your mind-body system that, hey, like I actually like doing the thing and the results are a byproduct of that. If you already feel like you're going down the hole of obsessive passion, a really good way to get out is to take a good hour or more and reflect on why did you get into the activity in the first place? And if those reasons aren't still there and those don't still feel burning, and it just feels like you're chasing this validation, whether it's fame, recognition, some other reward, that's a really good signal that it might be time to reevaluate how you want to spend your time and energy, especially if this thing's a hobby. You know, in some of the work that you've done, you've talked about where behavioral health comes in. And as you were speaking and you were talking about the 48-hour rule, I couldn't help but think, oh, yeah, that sounds great, but I'm still obsessing about mistakes I made when I was 12. Mm. So, (laughs) 
I think for a lot of people, the anxiety and, you know, that sense of, and of course, it's so much easier to think about the things that I did badly than to think about the things that I did great, you know? Yeah, yeah. We've got a natural, like humans have a bias and, and that bias was really, really helpful for our species to survive because like, sure. that's the bias that helps us think like, oh man, I didn't see that tiger over there that almost killed me. So I better be on the lookout for tigers, you know? Sure. Yeah. What do you suggest as far as like getting past that, you know, that the anxiety of the guilt or the, the feeling of just defeat that sometimes follows us throughout our lives? And sometimes we can pinpoint like, oh, yeah, this is where that happened or this is where, you know, I made that mistake or I lost that race. But sometimes it's just kind of there, you know, and I think that that's something that a lot of people struggle with. It's just this kind of free flowing sense of not being able to do well as well as I'd like to do. Yeah. I mean, that's a hard thing to deal with and to overcome. I think the the first thing, and we could go on for hours on this, is not to judge yourself if you feel that way. So there's this elegant parable about someone that gets hit by a second arrow and that the second arrow almost hurts worse than the first. Or excuse me, not almost, always hurts worse than the first. Wow. So the first arrow could be the negative thought, feeling, or emotion. And then the second arrow is judging yourself for having it. So what can often happen in people that are really working on self-improvement is you start ruminating or you start having some depressive thoughts about something in the past or anxious thoughts about something in the future. And then you get angry at yourself for having those thoughts, which always just makes things worse. Yeah. So the first thing to do is like have some self-compassion. Being a human is very hard. Being an emotional person is really hard. And when those thoughts of sadness or grief or regret about the past or anxiety about the future come up, Instead of judging yourself or immediately trying to make them go away, try to send love to the places of you that are hurting or that are scared. The second thing to do is really focus on being vulnerable in a community. So the most helpful thing to getting through those rough patches is having people around you that care about you and that you can be open and honest with, and then that then can be open and honest with you. And again, I mentioned this at the outset, like something that worries me is the degradation of communities is more people spend more time on the internet. There's less tight knit in real life communities and talk about something that's essential. I really believe that that's essential to our, our mental health and our performance because you can't perform well if you don't have a good sound body of health. And then, you know, for listeners that are out there that might be really struggling, the other thing is, and I'm a self-help writer, but like self-help is rarely enough. So if you're struggling with anxiety or depression, never be afraid to seek help from a therapist. I've gone to a therapist for anxiety. It's a real thing. And, and there are trained professionals that can really help. So like, yes, reading self-help books is great. <laughs> I write them. But sometimes it takes a little bit more than that, or at least it takes a professional to work with at the same time. Yes, we definitely agree here. It's spark joy. Sometimes reaching out to a professional to help you with your anxiety or your overwhelm is the right choice. And I wanted to mention, you know, we're talking a lot here about self-help. I think over the last three years, I have been really zoning in on this area. To spare you, Brad, I won't go into my life story here, but <laughs> go for I'll just it. <laughs> for short tell you that I use the vehicle of exploring objects and tidying to ultimately find my passion in professional you know, practice of KonMari. And I started out really in corporate America for 14 years. And I would say five out of those 14 years, I enjoyed it in an authentic way. And then 
the other years, I was just kind of putting my head down, making sure I did the work, was technically successful, but I just wasn't feeling inspired or like I was making a difference. Through this tidying journey, I was able to really change my story, change the narrative, and now live in a sense of that I'm following my passion. And I share the story a lot when I am taking this message on the road with speaking engagements. And I've had at least two people approach me locally saying that they'd like to create that sense of community and they like to have me mentor them. Unfortunately, I am very guarded about my free time at the moment, <laughs> like we were yeah, talking about yeah. uh, with boundaries. So as much as I'd love to say yes, I've had to decline because it's just gotten to that point and I have to reevaluate. I know there's a lot of people out there who've expressed they feel like they are also on their own personal journey to find their passion. Do you have any tips for someone who is looking or trying to land on what their passion is and doesn't really know where to start? It's a great question. This is one of the other ways that the conventional thinking on passion can be wrong and even harmful. So we're often told that we need to find our passion. But what the research shows is that people rarely, if ever, stumble upon a passion. And it's the expectation that you're going to find this activity that feels perfect, that immediately makes you tick from the get-go. That's what gets in the way of people actually finding their passion. Because if your bar is that high, you're going to go from one activity to the next. And maybe you'll stick around for a week or two. But then the minute things get hard, you're going to say, Oh, this doesn't feel great anymore. This can't be my passion. So much better than trying to find a passion is actually just exploring various interests and then giving them some time and space to grow. What's fascinating about this is the research in passion for activities completely mirrors the research in romantic passion. A scientist call it a destiny belief system of love. And that's like the Disney fairy tale that I'm going to find a soulmate. And there's polling that shows that over 75% of Americans believe that there's a soulmate or one perfect person out there for them in the universe. But what all the psychological science on love shows is that you actually have to cultivate love over time. So there's this trend that's going on both in the work world and in the dating world right now, which is people are kind of stuck in seeking mode because there's this cultural expectation that I'm going to find the perfect job or the perfect hobby or the perfect person. And if it doesn't feel immediately great, I'm just going to go on to the next one because I know there's got to be something great out there for me that keeps people kind of stuck in seeking mode. Whereas if you lower the bar from perfect to interesting, and then you give yourself permission to explore some interest and be patient, those interests can often develop into passions. Wow, you really hit something on the head when you talked about the whole thing with dating culture, because, you know, I think back in the olden days before the internet and you lived in your little towns, you had a limited dating pool, right? It would be, you know, sometimes if you lived in a small town, there were, you know, maybe a few dozen people that you were likely to end up with. And now all of a sudden it's just endless. And, and I remember back in those good, bad, ugly days of dating for myself, there would be days when I would have like two dates in a day because of online dating. And it was fun, but it was just like, you know, thank you, next. Thank you, next. Thank yeah. you, next. All of the time. And it was just ridiculous. Especially if the expectation is perfect because, and that's a false expectation. In the case of dating, there are companies that like profit off the expectation, which are all the dating apps that want you to sure. stay single and stay on the app. But yeah, it's lowering the bar from perfect to interesting and then giving things time and space. 
And then the other thing, not so much for relationships, that's, you can ask my wife, that's definitely not my area of expertise, but um, (laughs) for passions for activities, there are three big things to look for in interests that set them up well to become passion. And the first is autonomy or the ability to have some control over what you're doing. The second is mastery or the ability to see progress and improvement. And then the third is belonging or the ability to feel like you belong to something greater, whether that's a community or a lineage or a tradition of work. And I think podcasting is one of the perfect examples. And and it's no accident to me that so many people have become passionate about podcasting because podcasting meets all three of those criteria, Mm -hmm. right? You have total autonomy. So you get to decide who you want to have on the show, what you want to talk about. You get tons of mastery. So my guess is that if you were to listen to your most current episodes versus your first ones, you'd see very tangible levels of improvement. Yep. And then there's belonging because you're in a community with other people producing it, with your guests, and with people listening. And I just use the example of podcasting because we're here on a podcast, but there are so many creative pursuits that offer those big three. Well, and it's a really good point too, because another thing that makes podcasting and maybe lots of other creative pursuits so much more accessible now is that the, the barriers to entry are so low. You know, I mean, basically all you need is an app and a kind of maybe a microphone to be a podcaster. So I totally agree. That's a really, really good point. So what is your favorite tidying tip, Brad? Or productivity tip, one of the two. Yeah, no, I think they're the same, to be honest. They're one and the same because like what you call tidying in a physical space is, I guess, what I'd call productivity in your mind. So for me, it's tidying up my phone. I realized because I am so far from perfect that I was spending a lot of time on my phone and spending time on my phone is not one of my core values. So um, I went through all the apps on my phone and I just systematically took off apps that didn't align with my core values. And I was left with Google Maps because I don't like to be lost, the phone option so I can call people and text message. But I actually ended up taking the internet off my phone. Oh my gosh. And I am so much happier. It's only been like a month. In the first few days, there were tough periods because I'd be bored or I'd want to know something and I'd catch myself reaching for the phone. But after about four days, I kind of normalized and now I daydream more. And um, when I'm with a friend getting coffee or when I'm at the gym, I don't feel the inclination to check my phone. That's such a great tip. And did you even remove your email as well, I'm assuming? I did. Isn't that crazy? Wow. Wow. I really need to try that. I still can check my email at least three times a day. I haven't missed out on anything. Like all the fears that I thought would happen have not come true. What a great tip. Be ready for the anxiety at first. Yeah. Because those first four days, it was like, oh my God, I can't check my email. (laughs) Yeah. I'm already... What if someone needs me? (laughs) Exactly. I'm already getting anxious thinking about it. (laughs) But it's really humbling because like you end up realizing that like unless you're a trauma surgeon... Like very rarely does someone need you immediately for something that's so important that it can't wait. Right. So true. And I've always admired people who check their email only at certain times of the day and they've set that expectation. I used to work with someone who did that. See, that's great. I'm not that good and I'd like to get there. So I spend a lot of time as a writer and a coach like at my computer. Mm -hmm. So I'm still checking my email throughout the day. And that's part of the reason I took it off the phone. It's like, well, yeesh, like if I'm checking my email when I'm away from my computer, then I'm kind of always just checking my email. So now at least I'm only checking my email as a part of like, quote unquote, work. Nice. Well, we have to ask you, Brad, what's sparking the most joy for you at this moment in your life? So it's probably my 13 month old. He is 
just like really grooving into walking. Even during a book launch, I have tried to prioritize carving out time to be fully present with him. And uh, he does this thing because he struggles to balance. So he puts both his hands up and he's like walking around the house like a little monster chasing our cats with both his hands up. And it's just like the most endearing, heartwarming thing on the planet for me right now. Brad, do you have any parting words of wisdom for our listeners? My parting words of wisdom would be not to let perfect be the enemy of good. It's easy to listen to a show like this and then want to suddenly implement all these things and feel great for three days. And then a week later, kind of everything goes back to how it was. So I'd pick like one or two things and then think of it as a one-month experiment and see how it goes. And not everything that we discuss might work for you. Some things might work better than other things. So avoid the temptation to try to suddenly change everything at once uh, and take small steps because it's generally the small steps that lead to the big gains. Perfect. Thank you so much for helping us get focused here today, Brad. And if you'd like to connect with Brad, you can visit bradstolberg.com and follow him on Twitter at bstolberg. And while you're there, be sure to check out Brad's new book, The Passion Paradox and his family of bestsellers. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I really enjoyed the conversation. It was great. So now we want to hear from you. Tell us your burning tidying questions or share stories about how Kanmari has impacted your life. Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and review the show, which helps us reach others along their tidying journeys. To extend your tidying experience, you can join the Spark Joy Club. Visit sparkjoypodcast.com and click join the club to become a member of the Spark Joy community, or you can join us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope your day sparks joy. Thank you for listening to Spark Joy with your hosts, Kristen Ivey of For the Love of Tidy in Chicago and Karen Sochi of The Serene Home in New York City. Spark Joy, the podcast, is not endorsed by or affiliated with Kamari Media, Inc. The opinions expressed on this episode represent the views of the co-hosts and guests alone and do not represent the corporate position of Kamari Media, Inc. or the Kamari Consultant Community.